today's sermon, we're going to look at um, a topic called We Found Love in a Hopeless Place. We're going to look at Luke 1, uh, verses 5 to 19. So, obviously, the title is a popular song, and I'm sure if Andy Brims was preaching, he'd get you all singing along to it whilst doing his best Rihanna impression, but you might be uh, pleased to learn that we're not going to do that, and I'm going to take the more conventional approach of just reading the passage to you. So... <laughs> In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, whose wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's decrees and commands blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both now very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. So, start of this story, we find Zechariah probably feeling pretty hopeless. And I think there's three main reasons why he's going to be feeling hopeless. He's going to be feeling a spiritual hopelessness, probably a political hopelessness, and also a personal hopelessness. So spiritually, the Israelites have not had a prophet appointed by God for about 400 years, so they've not heard from God for four centuries. Now, maybe there's been a handful of miraculous events and occurrences in this time, um, particularly around the revolt of the Maccabees, but even this was against uh, a backdrop of the temple being desecrated and attempts to destroy the true worship of God. It seemed like Yahweh had turned his back on the Jews and left them to their own devices. And predictably, without God kind of actively involved, the Jewish religion had started to drift away from how it had been practiced in the glory days of David and Solomon. And it drifted off in three main ways. And you might recognize them. So the first one, people got really caught up in legalism and following man-made rules. And they sucked all the life out of the faith. And I'm sure sucked the energy out of everybody around them. This was the Pharisees, you've probably heard about them, because Jesus spent a lot of his time and effort arguing with them. And there were also another group, though, who maybe in modern terms might be what we'd call sort of theological liberals, people who wanted to preserve you know, Jewish culture and identity, but they didn't really believe in many of the accounts of anything supernatural happening. You know, they're very kind of rationalist. They didn't really believe in a God who was involved in human affairs. And there was a third group of people, They managed to avoid these two errors, which is good, 
and they instead got caught up in doomsday cults and conspiracy theories, convinced that every single thing they heard about in the news was a sign of the end times and that the Messiah was going to come back and save Israel, for real this time. Not like the previous 16 times when they prophesied the imminent end of the world, and it didn't quite happen. So, Zechariah may well have found himself feeling rather depressed about the spiritual state of the world, desperate for God to break through and to speak again after so long, and saddened by being surrounded by his fellow believers who are abandoning the truth of their faith for moralism, liberalism, or millennialism. That's conspiracy theories, and I literally wrote in here not to say millennialism, and I've done it, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, I wonder if we might understand a little bit of what he felt. So Zechariah may also have felt hopeless because of what was going on in his nation at the time as well. They'd been conquered by the Romans, which is this big foreign colonial empire, far too powerful for the Jews to overthrow. And the Romans had installed a violent, paranoid murderer as the king of Israel. I don't really know much about what that would feel like. Um, you know, England, places where I grew up and have lived all my life, has never experienced anything like that. But maybe there are people in this congregation who do, or whose parents remember a time when something similar may have happened with them, the country where they came from. I'm told that such a situation, you know, if you look at history, tends to result in large numbers of people who are willing to sort of fight and die to see their country free. So it's probably a pretty horrible situation to have to live under. So I can imagine Zechariah might have felt a bit hopeless about that too. And if that wasn't enough to make him pretty depressed, we also learn that he had no children as his wife was barren. Now, having no children nowadays can be a source of genuine sadness and pain. But back in the ancient Near East, this would literally have been seen as evidence that your family was directly cursed by God. In the culture back then, children were seen as a woman's greatest joy and also basically her sole purpose. Now, I don't actually at all agree with the Israelites on that one, but the point is that they would have believed that. And so if a woman was to be barren, she herself would have felt that this was pretty much the worst thing that could happen to her. Similarly, the crowning glory of a man's life was to have a son to carry on his family name and his history. And to not have had that would have been a great sign of failure. And quite likely, as I say, as seen as a curse from God. People would have been whispering behind Zacharias and Elizabeth's back. What awful sins have they committed? What have they done to deserve this? What great secrets were hiding behind the seemingly perfect life of this holy priest and his wife? It would have been pretty depressing. So when we join Zechariah in this story, we may well have caught him feeling pretty hopeless. I mean, not everything was bad. He was a priest. It's, it's, it's a pretty good job. Got to serve God. And he'd been chosen to burn incense in the temple, which, which would have been a bit great honour. But this was about it. He was an old man now. His life had been spent, and he was facing up to his last few years with his religion seemingly withering away, his people oppressed and subjugated, his wife shamed and mocked, and his family line probably dying out with him. Thankfully, though, for Zachariah, and for us, otherwise this would be a really depressing sermon, the story doesn't leave him in this position. He goes into the temple, and something incredible happens. An angel appears to him, and it says, Do not be afraid. Now, it's interesting, pretty much any instance where an angel in the Bible isn't taking on human form, when they appear in their true form, they almost always say, do not be afraid, or some variation on that. Now, some of that may just be that if you're wandering around your daily business and somebody just steps out of the air right next to you, you're probably going to jump at least, aren't you? You're going to be a bit frightened by that. 
But I think also that we in the West have a very kind of sanitised and wrong idea of what angels look like. We think of angels, you know, we think of the things that appear on Christmas cards. It's like this sort of handsome uh, blonde guy wearing white robes with nice kind of flowy wings and everything, you know. And that's not what angels are described like in the Bible at all. I think I have a slide about this. There we go. They look a bit different. If you, if you fancy some homework after this sermon, uh, I'd encourage you to read uh, the first chapter of Ezekiel, uh, where the Bible actually describes exactly what angels look like in one of the most brain-meltingly psychedelic passages you can read in Scripture. You can fa- practically feel the top of Ezekiel's head exploding as he just struggles to capture this vision of fire and lightning with multiple faces, wheels within wheels, and wheel rims full of eyes. So that appears next to Zechariah. And our passage describes him as being gripped by fear, which uh, I don't know if that's an understatement or Zechariah is a lot braver than I am because I would have ran out of that temple screaming. <laughs> anyway, despite how frightening this situation would have been, the angel actually has good news for Zechariah. His prayers have been answered. He will have a son, and that son will be mightily used by God to help save his people. Awesome news. Now, I don't know how much you guys know about the Bible, and his son's a guy called John the Baptist, who's who's quite famous, plays quite a key role in it. If you don't know, quick summary is, as I said earlier, the nation of Israel was in the spiritual doldrums. Many of the people who were worshipping God had fallen into the grip of one of these kind of three wayward ways of thinking that I mentioned earlier, focused on either being kind of holier than thou and annoying, or trying to adapt their religion to sort of modern sensibilities, or awaiting the imminent end of the world. And John the Baptist was called by God to lead like a revival movement that would change the culture of Israelite religion and prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. So, you know, this is an interesting story from John about John the Baptist, and it helps us understand more about the world in which Jesus came into, the world in which Jesus ministered in. And that helps us get a lot about, you know, the context that provides like meaning for what a lot of the things Jesus said and did. But I think what I want to look at today is not particularly that, as much as I find that interesting. I think this story actually can tell us quite a few things about how God probably wants to interact with us today, this very Sunday morning. So there's three things I want to draw out of the passage, if I can have my next slide. Three things about Zachariah and Gabriel's interaction that I think tell us about how God wants to talk to us today. These three things are that God cares about individual people like you. That God cares about fulfilling his promises. And that God's power is perfected in our weakness. So first one, God cares about individual people, just like us. Amen indeed. So the angel Gabriel turns up and he's going to announce the birth of John the Baptist. So this is the guy prophesied to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. Big stuff, big task. He was a man who God called to do remarkable things and play a key role in the history of the world. So if I was God, I would have probably got really excited about all that. I would have been like, yeah, I'm going to focus on that stuff. Gabriel, go and tell Zachariah that he's going to have a son and he's going to go and do all these amazing things. And God kind of does that. But if we look at the actual, the very start of how Gabriel starts talking to Zachariah, he actually starts with three other things. What Gabriel says to Zachariah is, your wife Elizabeth will have a son. You will call him John. And he will be a delight to you. So do you see what's happening here? God has remembered it's probably Elizabeth who was most hurt by not being able to have children. And so it's her that he's thinking of when he talks about them having a son. 
He then goes on to ensure that the baby has a specific name chosen by God. And then he goes on to say that the baby will be a delight to Zechariah and Elizabeth and make them happy. Only when he's got all of that stuff out of the way does he then go on all about all the stuff I would have been excited about if I was God, about the important role that John the Baptist is going to play in world history. And how easy would it have been for God to have been so excited about his big plan that he forgot about the feelings of this seemingly unimportant old man and his wife. You know, God's dealing with billions of people, plans that unfold over thousands of years, and yet he cared enough about this small, insignificant man and this, his wife that he focused first on their personal situation before he started announcing the start of the greatest series of events in human history. Point two, God caring about his promises. So when Gabriel then moves on to talk about what John the Baptist is going to do in his life, he's very careful with his choice of words. He talks about uh, John's mission to prepare the way for Jesus. And he says, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Now, Zechariah would have recognized this instantly. The man's the priest in the temple. He would have memorized the Hebrew scriptures by heart. And he would know that this, at least in our Bibles, is the last verses of Malachi. So that's the final words of the Old Testament. Malachi 4 verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dead, dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Else I come and strike the land with a curse. So pretty obvious, Gabriel is pro promising, sorry, is paraphrasing the final promise God has given to the Jews and that Zechariah's son would be the one to fulfill this. Right, next slide. I actually think there's a further future fulfillment but after some very tense negotiations with my wife who edits my sermons and gets very frustrated when I put stupid tangents in, we agreed to just put it up on a slide rather than have me go on about the end times for ages. So you can read that and I'm going to carry on with the rest of it. <laughs> so, what's important for the actual sermon and not about things I find interesting is that God, the very last thing basically God had said 400 years ago was this promise. And then after 400 years of silence, pretty much the first thing he says again when he starts talking to the nation of Israel is to bring about fulfillment of his promise. And we can, accept, we can expect sorry, that very same assurance of fulfillment today. And that's great. It's really encouraging to know that God always keeps his promises. What might be a bit less encouraging to us is when we look at the time scale. 400 years from when the promise was first made, that we may find a little less encouraging. And it's really hard to have to wait. It's very easy for us to start thinking, you know, maybe something was prophesied over you at some point years ago, and that's now kind of gone to the back of your mind. It's not been fulfilled after five or 10 or 15 years. And maybe you're all like, wow, you know, I probably heard that wrong. I don't know who that guy was who said it. I, I, he probably you know, misunderstood or something. Today, I want to encourage you to begin to remember some of those words that have been spoken over you. Words that you've put back to the back of your mind because they've not been fulfilled yet. If you heard correctly from God, then those words are going to be fulfilled. And I can't tell you when, but I feel God's asking us to try and remember some of those words today. So, point three, God's power is perfected in our weakness. So, we've had a look at this throughout the sermon series, but do you notice how Zachariah responds when he's told the news that he's going to have his, his son? 
he immediately looks at his earthly circumstances and he's like, well, I'm an old man, my wife is an old woman. Actually, he says, my wife is very advanced in years. So <laughs> even like 2,000 years ago, he had to be quite careful about how he worded that. So <laughs> and yeah, it doesn't seem likely that they'll be able to have children. And this makes a lot of sense. I think when we feel a call from God on our lives, it's a lot easier to accept this if it lines up with what we already believe about ourselves. So, you know, if God says to me, Duncan, the Duncan, I'm calling you to a ministry where you're going to teach the people of Croydon about the gospel. I'll be like, okay, I, I can accept that. You know, I love theology. I write well. I'm, I'm okay at public speaking, getting better. So that makes sense. If God were to say to me, Duncan, I'm calling you to a ministry where you're going to impact the people of Croydon through the Vineyard Churches Football Academy. Quick shout out to them, by the way. I, I, I'm not sure how I'd respond to that. I might be like, well, God, um, you know that even if a stray football comes near me in the park, I kind of shrink back in terror. I know if I go and try, you know when you have to try and kick it back to the lads who are playing with it? And oh, no, I'm going to fall over it. I'm going to boot it into someone's face, you know. Are you sure, God? Do you not mean to speak to Marcus about this? Or Andy, maybe? You know, as I say, we've been talking about this in our sermon series, but it's something I really struggled with. It makes much more sense to me, and I think to most people, if God were using, you know, the strong, the powerful, and the influential people to do things. Or at least, you know, if he's going to use people like me, at least give me something that I actually have a natural talent for. But that's not the way of the kingdom. God is all about using the weak to beat the strong, and all about using the foolish to shame the, right, the wise. And as I say this, I still really hope that he doesn't call me to serve at the football academy. But it's the kind of thing that would actually fit quite well into his character today. And I think we find another instance of this with Zechariah, who, much like with Abraham in the Old Testament, God waited until he was physically too old to have a son before giving him a remarkable child that would be the fulfillment of a promise. But that wasn't even what was in Zechariah's head at the time. He was focused on his earthly circumstances and what he believed about himself. And so he tells the angel Gabriel, I'm an old man now. And Gabriel responds in quite a strange way. He says, I am Gabriel. Okay, that's a bit weird. Imagine, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about volunteering at the football academy. I go and talk to Leslie about it. I'm like, I, I, you know, I feel this call from God, but, you know, I can barely even kick a ball. I think it'd be rather strange if he responded to that by saying, I am Leslie. <laughs> I'd be a bit weirded out by this, to be honest. So, so what is Gabriel on about here? Why is he doing this? Well, the name Gabriel means the Lord is my strength. And that makes a lot more sense as an answer. Zechariah is looking at his own strength. I am an old man. Gabriel is asking him to look at the strength of God. And so I wondered today if you may find yourself in a similar condition to how we found Zechariah at the start of our story. Perhaps you feel hopeless about how little God seems to be doing in our society, worried about where the world is heading. Perhaps the circumstances of your own life are filling your vision to the extent that you can only focus on your own circumstances and little else. Perhaps you're thinking, I'm an old man now, things aren't really going to change. If so, I wonder if God may be wanting to speak to you today, to ask you not to focus on your weakness or your circumstances, but on his strength. And I believe God wants to speak to some of you today in a way that will reaffirm his love and care for you as an individual, remind you of the promises that he has spoken over you that maybe haven't yet been fulfilled, and inviting you 
Not to look to your own fears and failings, but instead look at his power and majesty. I think we've got something else first, but we're going to go into a time of ministry in not too long. And so I, I think if, if it sounds like I might be talking to you in that last little paragraph, I would encourage you when the time comes to take a chance and come up to the front. For there are many people here who want to pray with you.